Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey everybody, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it, and I hope you're doing okay wherever you are. Today, I've got a craft work episode for you. I'm going to be talking about ghostwriting with Stuart Horwitz. He is the founder and principal of a company called Book Architecture, and he has spent more than 20 years helping writers become authors. Stuart Horwitz is a ghostwriter, and his clients have reached the New York Times bestseller list in both fiction and nonfiction. They have appeared on Oprah, The Today Show, The Tonight Show, and in the most prestigious journals in their respective fields. Stuart Horowitz is also an author. He has written three acclaimed books, which together comprise what he calls the Book Architecture Trilogy. The first one is called Blueprint Your Bestseller, The second one is called Book Architecture, and a third is called Finish Your Book in Three Drafts. Stuart Horowitz is also a writer himself, an award-winning essayist and poet. He has taught writing at Grub Street in Boston and at Brown University, and he has a couple of master's degrees, one in literary aesthetics from NYU and another in East Asian studies from Harvard with a concentration in medieval Japanese Buddhism. My conversation with Stuart Horwitz about how to be a ghostwriter is coming up in just a bit. So a couple of quick reminders before we get rolling. First up is my newsletter. I have a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe for free over at bradlisty.substack.com. The newsletter lives at Substack. It is pretty simple. I let you know about the latest episodes of the show each week, and I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to hear from me in your inbox once a week, head on over to Substack and subscribe. 
Also, if you like this show, if you enjoy what I do and you want to join the other people Patreon community, that would be ideal. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. Get some merchandise, get a book club subscription over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of The Night Parade, the new memoir by Jamie Nakamura Lin, a recent guest on this podcast. In The Night Parade, Jamie Nakamura Lin braids her experiences of mental illness, the death of her father, the grieving process, and other difficult topics, all driven by the question, how do we learn to live with the things that haunt us? That's The Night Parade by Jamie Nakamura Lin, available from Mariner Books. Okay, so my guest once again is Stuart Horwitz, founder and principal of book architecture and an expert ghostwriter. I feel like ghostwriting is something that most of us understand in context. We have an idea of what it is, but we don't really know all that much about the details. So I'm excited to have Stuart Horwitz on this program to break it all down and to offer up some insight into how it actually works. So without any further ado, let's get to today's conversation. Here I am with Stuart Horwitz. Well, so I've been a ghostwriter and developmental editor for 23 years. I think that these branches of the literary industry didn't really exist prior to a recent time and have definitely evolved over the course of things like self-publishing and eBooks and that kind of thing. But I'm a writer and I was working on a novel. I was working at a literary agency as a like associate literary agent, which basically meant I got the mail and opened the mail and read the slush pile. And uh, I became aware that they were these people who were then called book doctors, which is a really pretty slimy term, you know, uh, and I don't care for that. I don't have a black bag. I don't have a syringe filled with something we shoot, <laughs> shoot in your book and get you through the show. You know, uh, it's just not uh, like that. But I became uh, aware through the course of my work at that agency that realized that there was sort of a whole other niche in the literary world that was not editors that worked for publishing houses, but they were independent editors. And sometimes that required ghostwriting. Sometimes people didn't know how to structure things. They didn't, uh, English wasn't their first language. They didn't have the time to do what they needed to do. And the further I got into it, the more I realized there were all these other avenues, ways of being involved in, have a literary life and support myself, which was a, a revelation. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it remains a revelation for a great many people who work in and around books. It's a tough business to find a niche in. And especially if I, if you're in like the, the literary realm, as opposed to genre fiction or kind of really topical creative nonfiction, it, it can be a tough go. And mm -hmm. I'm curious to know about getting started. I think listeners who are hearing you describe the origin story might be thinking to themselves, okay, that sounds good. Like you're working at a literary agency and you're starting to recognize that this niche exists, but how do you get going? 
in something like that? You have to find a client, right? You have to find a client. You have to find ways of understanding your process and also being able to speak about your process. But I mean, at the very beginning, I had a trifold brochure. This is, we're definitely dating myself here, you know? Uh, and Wait, I so what's a brochure? <laughs> right. And, uh, and the image on it was something that I found in a, a it was a woodcut from a Moby Dick book. And uh, I went to Minuteman Press and I was like, I don't think I can use this because this was in California. And the guy was like, yeah, the designer, you met him. He was at a party. He was drunk. He said, you could use it. We're fine. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, great. Uh <laughs> So I think the agent just like left some of the brochures. She was giving a talk on how to get published. She left some of the brochures on the seats before people got there. And so it's literally like handing things out. Um, I did a talk at a library and the first couple of clients, you know, it was, it was very hit or miss. I think that's the other thing at the beginning. I mean, one client turned into an incredibly well-published author that I helped her redo the structure of her entire book. Uh, another client was like a psychic, but also had to do with feng shui. And it was like reverse feng shui. Like, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it didn't work out. And I gave her a full refund because she kept calling. She kept leaving me messages on my beeper saying, where are you? You said you'd be available. And I was like, okay, <laughs> first of all, it's a beeper. That's not really how that works. You know what I mean? Right. Also, like you're the psychic. Why don't you tell me where I am? It was just terrible. You know what I mean? So it's like, you have a lot of that. And I think a lot of it's learning from experience. You put yourself out there. It's like that with anything, charging, finding clients, networking, getting fired by a client. It's like, you have to have all of the experiences. So where you start is probably not as key as just keeping going. And you keep going through referral. I mean, I'm imagining that's how you build a business like this. And I, I feel like, you know, the old saw about how everybody says they want to write a book. You know, you talk at a cocktail party about the fact that you are writing a book and or you've published a book and somebody will inevitably say like, oh, I want to write a book, like as if it it's as easy as like brushing your teeth or something. Right. But there is, I feel like, a kind of common urge in people to storytell and to put themselves down in print in some way. And everybody has a good story. I believe that. I mean, if you really got into every, you know, a person's life, there's always something relatable and interesting there. But it just seems like though it may be hard to find the customers initially, you've probably, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you've probably discovered that there are a lot of people out there who would love to write a book, but need some help. Yeah. I think you're bringing up two really interesting topics. One of which is everybody has a book in them, but the question is how far do they imagine that that book might go? And sometimes people will write a book for their loved ones. And sometimes people write a book because they want to be on the bestseller lists. And, you know, sometimes we end up somewhere in the middle. And so, you know, dealing with the expectations and the scope of the project, I think is, is part of it. But as far as where the clients go, I mean, I think we still ask ourselves that question, right? I mean, I, I did this thing where I was like, all right, we're going to take the top 50 clients. And we're going to figure out where these people are coming from. It's just something that a business does periodically, right? 
And I, I divided it into eight quadrants. And one of it was like uh, current clients coming back for more work, current clients referring new clients, literary agents or publishers who might uh, recommend my services, like friends and family, like people my mother found, you know what I mean? Like it's, so it's just sort of going all the way around. And we started putting people in these categories. And as it turns out, like there were as many people in every category as every other category. And interesting. First, I was very frustrated by that because I thought I didn't just, I didn't learn anything. Right. I mean, it's just a scattershot diagram of it's coming from everywhere. And then I think I realized that actually is the answer is that it really can come from anywhere. People who've read my books on writing, people who've seen me on tour, people who, uh, you know, I'm not talking about things that are more advanced than somebody getting started, but the idea that anyone can refer you to anyone once you say, I'm open, right? Because say, hang your shingle or whatever that expression is like, I, I, I'm in business. That's the step to take. That's the courageous uh, I'm ready to engage. I have self-confidence. I have some training. I have some general idea of how this works. And, uh, you know, I'm going to learn the rest by doing. Right. Yeah. At some point you have to leap. And what you found is that there's a market. And I think outside looking in and kind of observing a little bit on social media, you know, watching developmental editors talk about their work or trumpet the work of a client or something is that if you're trying to build a sustainable business and make a good living, the market for business books and like quote unquote thought leaders, like I always sort of intuitively was like, that's probably where the sweet spot is because these people actually have money <laughs> right? as opposed to somebody who wants to write, you know, a memoir about their lives or you know, if grandpa wants to put his life down for the family or whatever, I guess occasionally it could, it could work out, but it, is that, is that accurate or is it kind of a mixed bag? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely had a, a, my first big success was in a business, was it with a business book? And I got advice from uh, an agent at the time that you should specialize in that because you could make a lot more money that way. And I was like, I don't know why I would do that because then I'd miss out on everything else, like the cookbook or, uh, the influence of Buddhism on Western art. Uh, and, you know, the best thing about this job is that you get all these mini college courses, right? I mean, you get to do like true crime, you get to do, uh, you know, health and wellness, you know, it's like anything that an agent might represent, like you see all the list of things that they say they're interested in. I like to say the same thing. Uh, and I feel like it's, I didn't want to over-specialize. And, Helping people tell their story has a, an intrinsic value, regardless of, of where it goes, that I think also I've learned so much as a person from some of the older people that I've worked with. I didn't even really realize it was happening, but I feel like I've been mentored by a series of 60 to 80 year olds. I'm getting up there now, so I should be careful. I'm going to make that number higher, 90 to 200 <laughs> year olds, you know? Could be, I'm going to be 55. I'm not my mentor by a 60 year old, but uh, people reflecting on their lives, people uh, finding the through line of their lives, they're finding like their wisdom and passing that on. It's really had an impact. Yeah, I bet. I kind of feel similarly about this show, like talking yeah. to people 
people are like, why are you still going 12 years in? And I'm like, it's hard to quit when you can have really in-depth conversations with really, you know, intelligent, interesting people. You learn a lot from it. Yeah. And I can imagine as hard as the work must be to ghostwrite and to do the work that you do to help shepherd, uh, you know, a book through the process for people that you get quite a lot from it. Yeah, absolutely. And it is hard. I mean, there are pitfalls everywhere. And that's another good thing about experience or not being shocked, you know, I mean, just anything can happen. I mean, you know, people disappear, people have breakdowns in their lives, people are people, you know, and so when you're engaged with them in this very intimate experience that requires a delicate chemistry for six months, nine months, a year, 18 months, it brings up a lot of stuff in them also. And sometimes they, it gets too real and then they have to stop it because they're not ready to be the author of the book that would say that. I mean, part of the challenge is to get to the heart, to the essence, to the most interesting things. But then, you know, now we have to put our name on that and that has to go out in the world and it, you know, it can get dicey. Yeah. I mean, writing autobiographically sort of inherent in that project, I think, if you're going to do it well and you're going to write something that is moving to people and gets to the heart of things, it's like my favorite phrase, you have to slow down where it hurts. Mm. And that's not always pleasant, you Mm -hmm. know? And I'm imagining you've probably had to encourage your clients to do that because even for a seasoned writer, somebody who's written and published several books, it can be very easy to sort of trick yourself into avoiding that. Right. Precisely because it is unpleasant. But as soon as you do that, I feel like the writing usually takes off and the people reading it usually lean in. And that's the thing. I mean, if you want to be a writer, you are saying, I'm going to be on the vanguard. I'm putting myself out there so that you, reader, can purge yourself cathartically of your pity and fear, whatever the Aristotle notion is, you know, I mean, uh, you're the fall guy and that that's it. That's the thing, right? Another thing I tell people a lot of times, I mean, you know, when we start in the ghostwriting process, uh, uh, often it's audio recording like we're doing now so that it sort of tricks people a little bit like, well, we're not actually writing yet. So you can just tell me anything. And then they're like, whoa, tell me this incredible story. And they're like, but that doesn't go in the book. The number of times I've heard that but that doesn't go in the book, it's always tied to the very best stuff. And I'm like, right. all right, well, we'll get to that. You know, right. I mean, like right. uh, what I tell people to alleviate their concerns is let's just talk about it now and then we'll see. Right. Uh, you might not even need it. You might realize it's fine or you might think, okay, I'm going to have to check with this person or that person to see how they feel about me using this material, but we can get to all that. What's what I think the most important part is if we stop now, we'll never get to the material on the other side of that self revelatory piece that's where we want to get regardless. So we might get to some amazing place and not even need what got you there. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I feel like it's interesting. You say the, you know, the, the term book doctor is sort of objectionable and I get that. And yet there is a process of having to build trust 
with a client, especially when you're working in intimate terrain, which books tend to be, but you know, I guess not all, but especially in that instance, somebody's writing a memoir and you're helping them and they have a difficult story to tell or a part of the story is very difficult. In order to extract that story, you do have to establish an unusual level of trust. This is not just a professional relationship in a traditional sense, uh, like a traditional business sense. This is, as you said, it's intimate. And so there is something that kind of mirrors a therapist building trust with a client. And there is, I notice in you, like you do seem temperamentally to have a calm about you. And I know from reading your bio that you have like what, a master's degree in Harvard in what is it? Buddhism? Like East Japanese Asian, midi- East Asian studies. Yeah. With an emphasis on medieval Japanese Buddhism. So this is of interest to me, like just as like a sidebar, <laughs> but I feel like it in the aggregate is it's all of a piece in terms of how you operate successfully as a ghostwriter. Yeah. I mean, I think the, um, trust is a, uh, can be a bit of a, a problematic word. I, I have a number of clients right now who are all sort of cult survivors and, uh, seem to, that seems to be a, a area where there's a lot of activity for me right now. And they don't want me to try to get them to trust me. And I understand that. Uh, so I say, trust the process, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be about me. I'm not the judge of your material. I'm not evaluating what goes in the book. I'm not evaluating how successful I think it's going to be. I have recommendations. My recommendations are just as often going to be about structure, theme, through lines, repetition. You know, that's where I'll speak up, but not for somebody's heart or mind or uh, what they want to get out of their book going into the world. But so um, the being behind the scenes and having it not be about me, I guess that's the Buddhism piece, you know, that the relationship of the soul and the ego, or at least I know that my ego needs gratification because I was given one, just like I was given fingernails and feet and whatever, you know, and, but I, I, I know enough to, I'm going to get that somewhere else. Right. So I've written books on writing. I'm an essayist. We don't need to get into the other things that I do, but I know how I'm going to be like, oh, you wrote that? Oh my God, that's great. Hey, that's really you know, amazing. You're am- oh, okay. All right, we got all that. So now you get that handled and now it's about somebody else and there needs to be room for that also. I mean, that's the, the Bodhisattva vow. There's several of them, but one of them is about equalizing self and other. That was actually my first tattoo, Brad. Oh, really? <laughs> now that I think in about San, it. In, in, Sansk- in Sanskrit? Like in, San- Tibetan, Sanskrit in Tibetan, yeah. And, okay. Yeah. Um, so that means that other people have as much of a right to have their story told as you do. And then we're all here, right? However many billions and growing. Just going back to what you were saying earlier, everybody's got a story to tell. So when it's time for their story to be told, then... I become an instrument of that happening. And uh, that makes it easier to not get credit, right? So it's not like I've never done an as told to or with. That's another thing. Like I know that there are people who do that and they do it for a variety of reasons and some of it's marketing. And if it works, that's great. But like I have books with my name on it. And then there are a whole bunch of books that don't have my name on it. 
and I'm not anywhere except the acknowledgements for the most part, usually named as an editor because we sign a non-disclosure agreement and we don't get into who did what exactly. You know, they might thank me for helping them realize their vision or whatever sort of uh, euphemisms we want to use. But sometimes I'm not in there at all. And, you know, my name is just on the check, as we like to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, and, you know, I think for some people that might sound like no fun at all. I think there are a lot of people who at least part of the allure of being a writer is to have their name on the cover and to sort of have that moment in the sun and nothing wrong with that. I mean, you, you've had that, you've published several books, so you know that experience, but I kind of feel like what a relief it must be to be behind the scenes. And, and also it is its own kind of gratification. And maybe there is some degree of ego gratification in helping a person realize their vision to a degree of mastery that they would otherwise not be able to achieve in the absence of your help and guidance. Right. Like that's, that's gotta be really gratifying, right? I I think that you're, you know, bringing up a good point, which is this idea that as a ghostwriter, you're like an accountant or a landscape architect, you know, it's not your vision. It's their vision. You just happen to have a skill set, like my CPA who helps me with my taxes. I mean, you know, thank God I have him, but he didn't make the money. It's not his business. Uh, and so I've never ghostwritten a book where it was my vision. Actually that happened once. It's probably a story I shouldn't tell, but I'll tell it anyway. This woman really just wanted to be famous. I mean, she wanted to be, she wanted to teach at Omega and, uh, she wanted a book that would support her speaking, but she had no like philosophy. And I was about a third of the way into it that I realized, okay, now I'm just create, I'm supplying the philosophy and it's not even my philosophy. It's like 12th century sudden enlightenment versus gradual enlightenment from Chinese Zen. I'm like, all right, we can't, we can't do this. This is wrong on a lot of levels. I had to, had to back out of that project, but you know, for the most part, it's, it's somebody else's vision. It's somebody else's life. It's somebody else's understanding. And I'm supplying things that I've been trained for, or I'm inherently talented at that like structure and process and, um, experience with revision, but just like you would work with any professional. So I don't know, this whole thing about ghost, even ghostwriting is just like a weird word, you know, and now we have to believe in ghosts or I don't even really know where this comes from. Like, who am I in that scenario? You know, am I the ghost? Are they the ghost? I'm animating through them. And it's just, um, it's their book. They just, you know, are getting help. Like a midwife. Maybe that's another way to think of it, you know? Uh, but let's talk about this because there is, uh, the issue of plagiarism versus collaboration and making sure to make that distinction in the context of ghostwriting. So can you talk just a little bit about that to like clear that up? Well, I mean, the ghostwriter is somebody who is expendable. The author is not. And so the book would not exist without the author, which is why sometimes there are multiple ghostwriters on a book. And there's also nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, some of these high profile books that you hear about, like either 
Prince Andrew's, uh, Prince Harry's book, excuse me, or Britney Spears's book. You know, they, they had multiple ghostwriters in some cases. I know Britney Spears did. She worked with three different people in three different major periods. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, I have been brought into books where I didn't, wasn't the original writer and I have been moved on from where, you know, it was time for somebody else, a different voice. It reminds me of like screenwriters, you know, this happens on movies where screenwriters will be, you know, cycled out of a project or cycled onto a project to help give a fresh perspective. Yeah. And the contributions count and they, they last and they're in there, but there's that guiding light, that driving force behind the whole project is the author. So, you know, to be plagiarism is, is not, um, it only applies if somebody's actually taking their material from somewhere else. It's not if I'm helping birth, as you would say, their material, or even if I'm giving them great lines that they're taking. I mean, you know, as a writer yourself, I'm sure people have said things to you or suggested things in beta reads or whatever the case is. And you're like, that's a great idea. May I have it? You know? And they're like, sure, sure. definitely. You know, and you use it. So is that, are you a plagiarist now? Because somebody else came up with that idea. It's like, um, but I think it, it does come back to the ego and being able to say, whose project is this? How do I best serve them in realizing their, uh, project? And, you know, it, it's hard as writers. We, we want to be heard, right? We, we, we have that, as you were saying, there's this what we want to be on the cover. We want to be the, the guy. You can't always be the guy. And I'm just, I mean, this is just a total curiosity question, but like working with bigger name people, celebrities in particular, I'm imagining you might have some experience with that. Are there, I don't know, heavier demands? Like, do you have to deal with, or is the ego piece, I can imagine the ego piece might be bigger. So um, I'm, I'm, I've been sober for 22 years. And it was one job where they were like, we want you to come and bed on our yacht. And I could just picture the crystal and the Coke flowing. And I was just like, I, I can't, I can't do it. You know what I mean? They, not, wait, they wanted you to, they wanted you to do what? In bed, you know, like a reporter oh, would, but I, but like live on their yacht in Miami for, and I was just like, I just see that bad things happening there. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not the guy for that. Right. Um, and then, you know, you say no to them and they, they, they're not used to hearing that, but I, you know, celebrities are a extreme case, but everybody basically starts the same way. They think they know the story they want to tell, and it's the same story they've been telling, and they, they want it to be part of their brand, whether they're a business launching a new product or somebody running for office or a celebrity trying to stay relevant or whatever it is, you know, they have this thing that they're trying to get out there and you know i'll listen to that but then i'll ask my sneaky questions i don't even realize i'm being sneaky but i'll just be following what's really interesting to me and they'll end up like spilling all this stuff and then you're like okay well where's that been and right. whose permission do we need to get to have that be the focus of this book because now, now we're being vulnerable and now we're not really being on brand but at the same time, maybe some marketing person will be like, no, this is great. This is exactly what you need. It will counter 
these awful stories of you in the press, you know, be self-revelatory. Now it becomes like this thing. But when people realize that it's it's going to require them to push themselves and to be vulnerable, it's usually like the eyes get big, you know. And But some people <clears throat> I find, I mean, it feels like it's it's some people are more suited to that or have an easier time with vulnerability and self-revelation than others. I run into this doing this show. And what I find, these are not hard, fast rules. These are just general tendencies that I've noticed is that people who have been in recovery and have gone through a recovery process or who have, or, and, or have done a lot of therapy tend to be really good at it. Excellent at talking about difficult stuff and being vulnerable and sometimes, yeah, I think it's those two pieces like recovery and therapy tends to lead to somebody who is going to give you a good interview in the early drafting process. Right. Have you noticed something yeah, similar? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and then they get into this period where they're just, they're in another place and they're just talking from there. And it's almost sounds like a rant in a way, but I'm like, then it's my job to say nothing. You know, they just going and they're, they're basically writing pages of the book. I mean, yeah, it's gotta be copy edited and that's a run on sentence or whatever, but the, the life and the energy, it, it's like, wow, here we go. You know? And then that, that sets the bar for what we want to try to get back to next time. Yeah. Well, and in terms of process, like what we're talking about in terms of how a book is ghostwritten. Uh, by you is that you begin in conversation with your client, getting the story out of them yeah. verbally, recording it, and then transcribing it. And then you have, I would imagine, a pretty big document. You can you can fill up pages pretty quickly in conversation. H how many conversations do you tend to have with somebody to extract? Because another thing that I can imagine would be true in many cases is that an initial hour or two hour or three hour conversation, that first one might yield some good stuff, but the third conversation, the fourth conversation might be where there's a comfort level and somebody starts to get vulnerable and revelatory in a way that leads to a good book. Is that, yeah. does that square with your experience? It, definitely. You know, I think it, it's like, uh, probably heard this distinction between the pantser and the outliner and people write, they're either right by the seat of their pants or they are very methodical about figuring out what every writing session is going to include. And there's people like to assign themselves a camp, but I think it's really uh, two sides of the psyche and it's a matter of knowing which one you want to do when. So the first draft is definitely pantsing it through uh, spoken interviews, but there is a time to do some of the outlining. So we might do 10 interviews and then I'll take some time to transcribe, set up a preliminary structure and know that I'm going back in with more in-depth questions. Or we might just do 30 uh, hours and I'm just sort of keeping track on the side. I think one of the skills that a ghostwriter has to have is the ability to unearth the theme and unearth the through lines and be able to put the material into buckets and say, you know, as this is shaping up, I'm seeing we have these eight categories of material 
And in, if you agree with this author, then category five and seven seem particularly light, or maybe they're part of something else and we move them. Uh, but so whether that sort of outlining work of where the scenes are, uh, you know, whether that gets done at the end of the first draft or sort of periodically in the middle of it, that will provide fresh interview questions is something to kind of feel out. It's got to be, I bet that's part of the fun though, when you can unearth that theme and you see those through lines and the buckets start to become clear. That's got to be the thrill, right? It's terrifying. You start to see it. I mean, I have to do it, have to do it right now. I have to take uh, you and answer your question. I think we have 107,000 words. I got it all printed out. I got a binder clip on it. I'll take it to the library because I won't even want to be in my office when I do it because I don't even, I don't want any ownership because in case I screw it up, it's like, we'll do it over there. And then, you know, the highlighter and the pen and then pad. And, but that ability to see the order and the animating features of somebody's just life expressed dialogue that is, I guess, the superpower of the writer that, you know, I feel like I have, I feel like I've always had it. I only never don't have it when I have a concussion. Uh, I've had like five concussions. Do you often have concussions in my life? And uh, when I oh, have boy. concussions, I'm like, oh, this is what it would be like if I was a regular person. <laughs> right now, I don't even know what the heck I'm doing with this 107,000. This looks impossible, you know? Yeah, you know, getting hit by a drunk driver, getting a table in the head or a golf ball in the temple. I, I guess I'm susceptible to it at this point, but. Just just bad luck. I was going to say, are you like a kickboxer? Like what, what's <laughs> no. happening in your life? My, I was talking to a writer yesterday who wants to buy me a football helmet and wear it around like a zonker <laughs> in the old Doonesbury cartoons, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just don't leave the house without your helmet on and, and we'll be, we'll be right. right. <laughs> so you get the initial conversations in general. Like how many, do you have like a general number that you tend to zero in on for the initial round of conversations to get that first draft transcribed and on paper? Yeah, I would say, uh, 20 to 30 hour conversations, hour long conversations generates enough material because you always want to be, and you know, this being a writer yourself, you always want to be able to select between things. You don't want to just have to deal with what you have and try to like patch holes. Uh, it's great to leave stuff on the cutting room floor, not fear the process, not fear the time we're putting in. And then that will be enough to set up the frame of the, the draft, which we can use going forward. And a lot of times then that, can be done with interviews, filling it in. But at some point, you know, authors, even authors that aren't writers or don't write for a living or even for fun or their job will take the manuscript at some point and start writing in it. And they'll be like, is this okay? And I'll be like, this is great. You know, and uh, no, you don't owe any less just because you're <laughs> you're writing now. You know what I mean? Right. Like they, they think, oh, we're, we're co-writing now. I'm like, no, co-writing is something different. They, they just see it and they want to engage with it. And, and, and now they have the confidence to do that. They, they, they've gotten the process to this point where they can say, oh, um, I, I get it. And I, I want to do this. And it's fun. And it adds to their sense of accomplishment. And, you know, I said, please do this and track changes. But I'll probably end up reading the whole thing start to finish anyway. So they don't even really have to do that. 
Okay, that's interesting is the point at which you share. Like you do the 30 conversations that are an hour each, you get the 100,000 words transcribed. I, I have to imagine you're using a transcription service, right? Uh, I'm sometimes I'm doing it myself. Sometimes someone who works with me at Book Architecture is doing it. And um, oh, wow. I think we feel that doing it ourselves is part of the whole process where you know, you're getting to hear it on another level. You're hearing things you didn't hear before. Um, in some cases, if I'm doing the transcriptions, I won't transcribe everything because I already know that we don't need that. If I'm, if a colleague is helping me, supporting me and doing that, she'll say, you know, um, she'll come away with all these ideas about what else this book is or could be. And then we'll have these internal conversations about it. So I've never used a transcription service. Why not even like an AI just to get like something ugly on the page and then you clean it up. No. Wow. But that, that enforces a careful listen. Yeah, for sure. And, and it maybe slows you down a little bit too, because I'm, I'm imagining you're a relatively fast typist, but when you're transcribing, you do have to stop. And I'm imagining you're not just fluent, fluidly sitting there typing. No, right? not, a, looks... not a stenographer, not a court trained. Right. Uh, I do have a friend who's like <laughs> right. that though. And uh, no shorthand. No, but I mean, I think the, the time that is being spent, if it's being spent efficiently, and you're sinking into the material and getting ideas and making connections, that stuff has to be done anyway. So why not do it while you're transcribing it or while you're arranging the material into the buckets and it's all part of the creative process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You get an intimacy with the material, like, like almost in, in step mm -hmm. with the process as it unfolds, as opposed to kind of getting it all transcribed externally and then having to sit there and sift through it. Right. It's yeah. probably more efficient. Right. You're going to have to, you're going to have that to do sense. it all. And then, you know, when, when I'm presenting the material in buckets, that's always like pre-flighting the client. This is what it's going to look like. It does it's not going to look like a book. You're not sharing this with anybody. It's not time for your wife or husband or mother or daughter to read it yet. You know, it's, uh, it's where you really have to educate people also like aesthetically what this kind of thing looks like. And, you know, there, there are transcriptions that are cut and pasted in various places with some headlines, maybe some words of description, maybe a table of contents, but you, you, you know, you kind of have to bring people along and say, this is what it looks like. It's like, I guess, building a house. I mean, you know, I can't read a blueprint. Uh, we built it, we built a house, the place we lived before where we live now. And I was walking into it when it was framed and I was terrified. I was like, there's no way this turns into a house, you know, but I just had to calm down and they were just like, this is how you read a blueprint. This is why we frame it with wood. This is, this is this amount of space we leave for the insulation and the electricity and the plumbing. Like you don't know this yet, but you can learn it because you're, you know, you have a brain. And eventually it will look like this. And then you can start hanging your pictures on the wall, which is the equivalent of that is, you know, we can worry about what the verb is in that sentence, you know, so that, that can, that can get a little scary, especially if it's tied to a payment milestone, you know, like here, I just right. did this giant load of crap and now I need you to pay me. And they're like, um, okay. Yeah. For what? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. how it goes, huh? Yeah. yeah. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, for somebody who has written a book or tried to write a book, 
it's probably less destabilizing than it would be for somebody who's never done it before. Like, because the process can be a little bit messy, right? Yeah. And, or, or at least uh, less linear than people might imagine going into it. So just to drill down, like the question of when to share with the client the work in progress. You do the 30 conversations, you transcribe those conversations, you have the stack of pages, you go to the library, you bust out the different color highlighters and you start to sort of bucket it and to get a sense of you know, perhaps theme and to start to make sense of it. At what point, generally speaking, do you share text with a client? I mean, I suppose if they ask for it, you're not going to deprive them of material, but how does it usually work? No, I'll share the whole bucketed document with them. So in this example, we're talking about 107,000 words has been reduced to 63,000 words and it's in nine chapters and there are subheads and then just the transcription cut and paste with some notes from me about why this is here, what it can link to, how that linking would go, what's missing. Uh, and so it is, it's sort of like a very rough map of the territory that we are discovering together. It's not just the coastline. We're starting to get, oh, there's definitely a mountain there. And I'm pretty sure that's the pond that they told us not to go in, you know, but uh, then there's a whole bunch of blank space and uh, inviting people in. And sometimes people don't want to see it. And they'll say, I trust you and just tell me what I need to do next. And okay, the next thing you need to do is maybe we have 10 conversations about the missing material or, and, or then it's time for me to shape some chapters that come back looking like written material that they can engage with, that they can read, that they can comment on, or they can switch into track changes, or we can have follow-up conversations about. Yeah. So, I mean, like in terms of buckets, like are buckets almost like chapters or sections of the book? Definitely. That's what it looks I'm trying to. I'm trying to picture what it looks like in practice to bucket content out of a giant stack of transcribed pages. You're saying, oh, okay, we'll do a chapter on this. You're starting to actually structure the story and each section or chapter is essentially a bucket. Yeah. Is that right? Chapter, chapter title, maybe a, a telling quote, maybe some subheads maybe a sense of how that chapter, the beginning and the end are going to come together so that it gives that sense of uh, a whole or internal rhythm. You know how like chapters can present their own reading pleasure where you feel sure. like you just accomplished something, you had a whole mini experience. So they're on their own theme. When it starts getting into that, it gets really exciting. You know, it's like now we definitely see that there's a book coming together here. And from that point on, it's it's we're almost unstoppable. It's yeah. it's the That's... is the material there. And sometimes it's not, you know, I mean, sometimes we do the transcriptions and uh, we do more interviews and we do more transcriptions and it's just there's no book. And I mean, they say success is, you know, has many fathers and failures and orphan, which we don't like to say around here because my younger daughter is adopted and we don't, or, <laughs> orphan is not a cool metaphor. And also why does success have fathers and not brothers? Right. I mean, so the whole thing <laughs> right. is messed up, but right. uh, 
it, it does become a matter of like, who are you going to point fingers at? But it could be a variety of things. It could be that it wasn't the right time for this person. It could be that it's not the right chemistry. It could be that uh, they haven't figured out what they want their book to be about. And they're so sure that they want it to be about this, but it's actually should be about that. And I haven't been able to get them there, but it doesn't always work out. I mean, I think that's, you know, that that's one of the, the things you never tell the client, but you always tell the people, the ghostwriters that I mentor or um, coach, you know, it's like, it's going to happen. Everything is going to happen. You're going to get a call from the client's husband that the client has had to go in for treatment and um, mental health treatment, and he would like a refund. <laughs> and you're like, uh, yeah. okay. First of all, if my wife was, you know, in that state, I don't know that collecting a few thousand dollars from the developmental editor would be on my list of things to do today. <laughs> right. right. That's right. one thing. Another thing is like, uh, I don't know if you have a copy of the contract, but it says like all money when received is considered earned as it kicks off the next period. So like legally or also like, what are you doing anyway? I don't know if that story yeah. stays in that. <laughs> yeah, I'll leave well, that up no, to but you. I, mean, I, I want, I want to get into that part of it because I think it's a question that will be on the minds of listeners, you know, is, is the money part of it? Like how to set a fee structure, how to do contracts, like how to handle, cause you're, a, you know, you're in business for yourself yeah. and you've got to navigate all of that stuff. There's not like a, uh, an infrastructure around you, but just to, before we get there, just to make sure that we, you know, paint a clear and full picture of the drafting process. First draft is audio conversations recorded and transcribed. Then you bucket things and you start to kind of build, as you called it, a, a rough map of the book as you begin to envision it. You share that with the author, the client, and they get to, at that point, begin to offer their own input right on top of that draft in some cases, correct? Yeah. And sometimes they won't do it to the bucketed draft, but it will be conversations for us to continue shaping the structure and supplying missing material. They usually don't engage until after that. Then I start presenting chapters where the repetitions are eliminated. A little bit of writing has been done. People want to say, like, when are we going to get to the writing part? I guess that's what they mean. We know the whole thing is writing uh, from the first time we're talking about it to the last proofreading period inside the quotation mark. But they want to know the writing, which is where the sentences start sounding like something you could share with someone else. Uh, that's usually where, where they'll where they'll enter. So we could call it the second, we could call the transcriptions, the first draft, and we could call the bucketing like between the first and second draft. And then the second draft is where it starts looking like writing. That's usually where they'll start weighing in with the track changes in the comments. And then when that's revised, we have a document that we then go to beta readers, uh, you know, readers before the book is ready and we ask them questions. We can talk about that, but that is what prompts the third draft. So I try to do this in a three draft process just to sort of get to the end of the, that part. Who are your beta readers? Is it, so, do you tend to try to source those through the client or do you have like a, 
a beta reader pool? Yeah, both. Clients will usually have ideas of people. I think finding beta readers is maybe not as challenging as knowing what how to handle them and and what what we're trying to get from them. So I recommend a beta reader questionnaire where it's like 10 questions. We start funneling their specific responses to things, you know, like uh, what was your what were your most exciting parts where you didn't feel like you could put the book down? Uh, where did the book drag? What kinds of questions were you left that were unanswered? Uh, was there anything that struck you as factually wrong or anything offend you? You know, like these kinds of questions so that people actually have something to respond to as opposed to, I was great. I really liked it. Or there's a right. spelling mistake on page 79 or, you know, and it's like, okay, let's help you. So collating the beta reader feedback is, is key. Uh, you know, it's not a, how, how many, how many did you say? I'd say beta three, to, three to seven. Okay. Less than three. And you start sort of privileging their responses more than you might need to or more than seven becomes kind of air traffic control gets a little challenging. It's not a democracy. So it's not like the number of people who vote to take this part out, they win. It's we're, we're looking for that feeling that we know it's right. And sometimes that feeling is a little, feels a little sick, you know, where you're like, I knew, I knew that was a problem. And now I have to deal with it because somebody else said it and now I can't ignore it. Uh, well, I feel like, I feel like in general, good editorial notes are sort of self-evident. Like somebody gives you a good editorial piece of feedback and it's usually like a combination of maybe like, aha, and then maybe a sick feeling, but then also like some mixture of gratitude and relief. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then the reverse of that, it's also true. You know, sometimes people don't get it at all or are just projecting so blindly that you're like hurt, offended, and then also still think it's wrong. <laughs> you know, like two days later, you're like, okay, I'm over all my personal reactions and that's absurd. And I'm not doing that. Like you have to be able to say that too, you know? Uh, well, I mean, not all, not all beta readers are created equally, you know? And I, I think there's also the issue of matching reader to material. You can do your best, even if you're pulling from a group of friends or family and you're trying to get them to read your book, it's not necessarily for all of them. Like it's a weird thing that happens between book and reader. So it's not entirely simple to, to game that out. Right. And, and the idea that not everybody's going to, nobody's going to be a hundred percent right. And nobody's going to be 0% right. You know, and, and really being brave and, and as clear as you can be to go into the feedback and say, I'm going to get something of value here. It might be a bunch of things. It might be one thing, but I'm going to find that thing and I'm going to let the rest of it roll off my back. I mean, it's, that's tough stuff. But necessary. And I feel like most writers, most good writers that I know who, you know, I talk to on this show, do some version of this. They have a trusted inner circle of readers or they'll find friends to take a look at a relatively done manuscript prior to going out to market with it. And I, I did this with my last book. I cannot imagine ever doing it otherwise. It seems like a, a very vital step in the process, however difficult it might be to hear certain things or however much of an emotional roller coaster it might be to get 
you know, disparate feedback. It seems like a good and necessary step. Absolutely. I'm, I'm doing this right now with this novel that I'm working on where I, I went to a round of beta readers and then I went to another round of beta readers and I had to ask myself, are you stalling because you're not, you don't want to find out where the market is or is not for this work? Or do you really need another? And I was like, no, I really need another set of input, but I don't need a set of input beyond that. You know, so that's like, and now if I go out to more beta readers after that, we'll know that I, it's my problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. There's like a, it's a delicate balance between having enough beta readers and making sure that you've vetted your work and have some outside perspective incorporated into the editorial process versus like you say, air traffic control, too many cooks in the kitchen mm -hmm. and getting disoriented as a result and maybe extending a project way beyond uh, you know, a sane time frame it can be a, that can be a, a part of it that I think it's sort of like the research process that I think a lot of writers can spiral in because it's sort of a comfortable place to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you can also maybe spiral on the back end in the beta reader phase as you just need to gather feedback. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and you're listening for the bells that ring, right? I mean, those clicks, like we say around here, heed the click, you know, and, and if you've, if you've lost your perspective or your grounding and you're not, you're not, you can't hear the bells or the clicks, you know, you're just, you don't, you've lost all, everything's become relative now. And so that's a good way of knowing you're, you're wandered a field. Yeah. Well, third draft is what we're talking about. Beta readers, you get that feedback, you go in, you integrate the feedback that you are taking into the project and you start to what you know you start to refine it and hone it and you're getting close to the finish line like talk about the end game yeah i mean and sometimes you know for my first book i i had a one beta reader who did not do the questionnaire who was late and who gave me an idea that was so good that i forgave all of that <laughs> you know she I, I had to write another chapter at the beginning of the book. And so that was like a big piece. Uh, a lot of times you don't get feedback that's of that size. And a lot of times it's polishing, nipping, tucking, you know, um, gearing. And so it's not a copy edit, but it is, you're able to come out with a refined product as a result of this. Uh, sometimes people will give you good feedback, but it's just not for you. Or it, it's like, that sounds good, but I, I don't have anything for that. And so it's time to move on because like we like to say, the point is not to go through life writing the same book the whole time, you know? So at some point it's never going to be a hundred percent done no matter what. So, and over 97%, it's so incremental the like what it takes to get from 97.2 to 97.4 it might not even be worth it you know um so at some point you have to let it go and yeah, you learn to intuit like when to step away yeah. from the canvas and like we know you know then you have to get into promoting the book anyway they have a whole there's a whole second life to this book now you have to you know i have to figure out where your readers are. And hopefully you've done some of that already. And your beta readers are to some degree 
pointing you in that direction. It's kind of like product testing, you know, what, who your audience is, but now you have to do all the legwork of finding those people and getting that book in front of them and getting reviews and getting mentions. And it's time to get onto that. This is the, this is kind of only the first half. Well, yeah. I mean, like let's, let's shift in that direction. You finish a book, you've got the manuscript done. You've decided like we've, we've hit the finish line and taken this as far as it can go. And it's in good shape. Your client, like in terms of the services that you provide to a client as a ghostwriter, is that the official end of the journey? Do you uh, offer copywriting or uh, copy editing where you really go through and do like a granular grammatical slash usage slash spelling proofread? You do all that stuff. And then do you also offer services that help a writer in the marketplace? We do. Um, I didn't used to back at the beginning when I had my trifold brochure, I was a literary guy and that's it. As long as the book is done, I'm done, you know, and uh, people needed more support than that. So we do the copy editing, we do uh, marketplace assistance. We help people figure out whether they're going traditional publishing or hybrid publishing or independent publishing. We help people if they're going traditional publishing Can you approach niche niche publishers directly are you looking for a literary agent what kinds of documents do you need you know query letter synopsis nonfiction book proposal if you're working with a hybrid publisher what are the arrangements this is in your best interest what kinds of support do they have uh, and if it's independent publishing you know we have a, a network of cover designers interior designers ebook coders so that you can get to the end Uh, by the end we mean the book in your hand we don't do promotion um it's just not an area that we have enough expertise to really offer that uh phase four or whatever that is at that point you got to stop somewhere i mean this is a lot (laughs) this is a big process that you're guiding a person through and it's a lot of it's a lot of intensive labor like uh it's deep work writing a book and you know, I think uh, I've had this conversation many times, uh, like sort of jokingly, but also with more than a grain of truth. Writing, even though you are completely static, <laughs> is very exhausting. It's physically exhausting mm-hmm. work, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that needs to be said. So the work that you're doing is considerable. And I'm wondering about managing expectations, particularly in the publishing climate that we exist in now. Clients go through this process with you and pay you good money, uh, for your services and are, I have to imagine some of them are like, I'm going to be a New York times bestseller, right? I'm going to be published by random house, right? Like you've got to manage that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, also how great the book is depends on a lot of things. And, uh, it depends on someone's story and their ability to articulate it. And we, I don't have a, magic wand to be able to create that out of nothing. Uh, it's more like a dowsing rod sticking with that metaphor to find where the existing water is under the surface, but I can't pump that aquifer. All right. That's the end of that metaphor, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so, so the expectations are on a variety of levels. I mean, as far as monetizing goes, depending on what the field is, I'll try to be really, honest with people and say writers don't make a lot of money but there are monetizing opportunities that a book can support like nothing else 
right? So, you know, if you've seen the latest author income surveys, the average amount of money an author's making, it's, it's dismally low, but, you know, um, the opportunities to speak, the opportunities to consult, the opportunities to uh, have coaching or other services, other products, you know, I mean, that's almost endless. And it can be a great tool for that. I mean, when my first book came out from Penguin, here's a story I shouldn't tell, but I'm going to tell it anyway. All right. My wife took me out for a celebratory lunch. I wasn't drinking at this point. She had a glass of champagne and she was like, so what's the advance for? And I was like, it's for $25,000. And she was which, like- Which incidentally is high these days. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and she was trying to keep her face. I could picture her right now with her leopard top, but she was trying to keep her face polite. But she was like, okay, this is, I'm like, but it's actually worth a million dollars because now authors who are a, a persnickety bunch are going to see the Penguin Random House logo on the spine. Now I'm the expert, even though I'm saying the same things I was saying five minutes ago. Now they can trust me. Now they're going to hire me. And I'm like, over the next seven years, this thing, it's going to be 40 times that. And you know, so I know what it's like from both sides. I mean, you know, the advances that I've gotten on the books I've published is not how my daughters are going to college. Okay. It's just not, it's just not how we're doing it, but they've been instrumental in helping that, you know? Sure. It's a legitimizing factor, you know, and it, it, it also concentrates like writing a book, especially a book, like a craft book, it's a concentrated form of thought. So it not only helps you in the marketplace to win clients and to like offer to them some assurance that you're an expert, but it also, I would imagine, improves your own ability to perform in the job that you do because it's forced your hand. It's made you have to clarify to yourself what you actually believe about this process and how it needs to be done to be done well, right? That is completely right. And it's also true when I go on tour and present the books or do writing workshops, I'm sitting there in the middle sometimes like realizing how much what I'm saying directly applies to the book I'm writing myself. And I'm like, oh crap, right? Now I've got to yeah. take my own advice. And by the way, that sounds like really good advice. And I should take yeah. it. And thank goodness yeah. <laughs> we're in that yeah, loop. Who's this steward guy? Who's this steward <laughs> guy who wrote this book? I should hire a genius. Him. This, yeah. <laughs> and some of it's calling yourself to account, you know, and like you're saying, managing expectations or putting the time in or doing that additional work that you feel exhausted, but yet it's what the book requires recommitting, you know, when you reinvesting, when you feel your attention slipping. Um, that a lot of times is what separates the people who succeed, however you want to define that, from the people who don't, right? If you quit, you're done. So all the people who don't make it are contained in that bigger circle of the people who quit, or the, I should say the other way around. The people who quit are contained, if you, in the larger circle, the people who don't make it, you got to find that extra gear or whatever that is. So you ever have clients freak out because they get to the end of it and you're, let's say they go out to the marketplace and they, maybe they have an agent and the agent takes the book out and the book doesn't find a publisher. 
Like, how do you navigate that sort of stuff? Because it's got to happen. It's a tough business. It's not easy to place a book. It does. It is. It's hard. And, um, you know, I think hopefully the expectations have been set. Things can, by that point, uh, it is... I was just thinking of another story that I probably shouldn't tell. Uh, but oh, please, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we had this proposal, and it was it was really good, and it was um, in the hands of a great agent who was going to market with it, and I was very excited because I was pretty sure that I was going to be invited back to help write the book. So we'd only done the proposal in a couple chapters, but that this was going to be, you know, a big part of the financial projections for the next year. I mean, it just felt like that. Meanwhile, the author was a columnist who was on national talk show and basically was advocating domestic violence in some offhand comment. And the person in charge, the panel host was like, okay, I'm going to give you a chance to retract that because obviously you didn't mean that. And he was like, no, he doubles down. Absolutely. I would do that in that same. And I was just like, these are the days oh. and I'm like reading this on the front page of the paper, not to uh -huh. date the story while I'm waiting for the tea in Boston. And I'm like, literally looking at the front, like my whole, like this, this just dissolving, you know, like, Right. You just right. never know. I mean, it's just like, that is the thing. You never know. And think, sometimes things will hit that maybe if people asked you your really honest opinion, what are the chances that this is going to hit? Maybe you would say, I don't know. I mean, but you know, they hit, they hit huge. And then it's very, it's very difficult to predict. It's impossible, actually. I think yeah, probably yeah. it's what we really are saying here. Well, I mean, my, yeah, my whole like, uh, professional and, and reading life feels characterized by that reality. And one of the animating forces of, of my life is reacting with like, it's like, it's almost close to panic at like reading an excellent book, what I perceive to be an excellent book that found 642 readers and just being like, what, like what, like how, like how, you know, and it's very common. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's who knows why certain things catch a wave and certain things don't even, even things that on the merits, at least from my perspective, deserve to be huge, but are not. Right. And then we'd have to get into karma and past lives and right. <laughs> uh, everything working itself out slowly over eons. But I don't know that this is that podcast, but you know, we can... <laughs> have you ever had that conversation with a client where you're like, look, like your past lives clearly have put you here and uh, I'm sorry, it's not a bestseller, but <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, and we talk about the zeitgeist, you know, we talk about how hard it is to time that. And yes. all the work that goes into a book, even the most visionary futurist would have a very hard time having a great book ready at the exact moment that these other cultural, political, and social movements and events had come to this particular crest to then ride that wave. I, I don't think that 
we have that capacity. So we have to return to authenticity, to solid structure, to making sure that the message is clear and pure and true for the readers who do find it. You know, we have to really ground ourselves in what we have control over. And sometimes your little wheel and the big wheel of fate turn at the exact right moment and you're on top. And then it's the worst thing that ever happened to you. Like, let's not forget that part, right? (laughs) Right, I mean, because your next book is going to suck and you're going to get canceled and someone's going to say, you know, uh, you missed this one little piece and how could you? And uh, you're a has-been now. Like you're you're already on your way to becoming a has. So, I mean, I don't know. It's, there's so many ways that it can be disappointing or disheartening. We always have to come back to the book. Does this book say what you wanted it to say? Did you do the best job you could do on it? Uh, are you proud of it? And if you can say that, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll pull up, I can't read my books, but sometimes I'll pull a book off the shelf and read a paragraph. And if I get to the place where I'm like, that's fucking right. You know what I mean? Sorry for my language. You know what I mean? No, it's all right. It's, it's like, all right, yeah. then I'll put it back. I'm like, good. We're good. I'll do that again we're next good. month. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. And you know, the, the inverse can also be true or some version of an inverse where you put a book out and the little wheel and the big wheel don't necessarily move in sync at that moment. But sometimes books have second and third and fourth and fifth lives. You can have a book that takes off three years after its initial publication. It's not the most common story, but it does happen. And you have no control. I mean, who who's to say why that's going to happen? And, you know, it's, it's forces beyond the author's control for sure. And you just have to sort of leave that up to fate. That's the magic fairy dust of big success in publishing is all the different disparate social, cultural, political, whatever it is, forces that are at play combining with the timing of publication i mean that's just luck yeah right nobody's got that algorithm you know f scott fitzgerald right with the great gatsby he died thinking gatsby was a failure he sold i want to say the year that he he died at what age 42 and i want to say the year that he died the great gatsby sold like a hundred and something com. I mean, it's some, some paltry number which is unthinkable right today you look back and you're like how but yeah, he died thinking that book was a total failure and that he had failed. Right. And, you know, then the army buys 500,000 copies during World War II or whatever it was and ships them overseas because they misunderstand the book and think it's a American anthem. And now it sells a quarter million copies a year. And, you know, I read it every five years, you know. Um, but he died thinking that he was a failure or the book was a failure. And I think that's an important distinction to make, you know, it's like the book's not a failure. We have to be able to say clearly what we think about the book, any book that we're working on and have that be separate from, you know, what society thinks. I mean, my wife is an example. She has an MBA. That's not what she does for a living, but you know, she'll say like, is so-and-so's book any good? And I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to define that now. Uh, what do you mean by it? Well, like, is anybody going to buy it? And I'm like, that's not really even the definition of any good. I mean, ask Vincent van Gogh that, you know, he sold right. two paintings in his lifetime. I'm like, she's like, okay, all right, whatever. She doesn't want to have <laughs> now the conversation's over, but 
but it's a critical conversation to have with an author in particular who does not come from a literary background or an arts background and who does not have this historical context to upfront, preferably, have a conversation about what the metrics of success actually should look like. Yeah. Because if you have somebody, say, from the business community who's trying to write a business book or to become a thought leader in a particular area of expertise, I would imagine their metrics for success are just as a matter of life experience and professional experience going to be couched in dollars and cents. And you've got to talk them around, I would, I would imagine, to at least some version of, hey, did you say what you wanted to say to the best of your ability? Are you proud of the work that you've done here? And do you feel like it represents you well as a human being? And then we can separate that from how's it going to perform, right? right? I mean, I'm imagining you have that conversation frequently. Yeah. Well, I think in the business case, they may even be more aware that the book itself is not going to be providing uh, much funneling to the bottom line, but that having that book in hand is going to be their TED Talk. It's going to be their um, leap to another organization in an elevated role. It's going to be what gets them funding for when their company goes public, you know, that they're, they're not even looking at whatever you make $4 a book, $3 a book. That's, you know, they're not trying to do that. That's interesting. Yeah. That's a good point. The business people might even have like a more grounded and realistic approach than mm -hmm. people who have no business background. And the people who think it's like being discovered, it's like you're at the soda fountain and you're Gene Harlow and someone's going to come in and be like, <laughs> I'm going to make you a star, which by the way, lasts how many pictures? One, two, three, then you get an addiction and then you're not the it girl or guy anymore. And now you're fallen into worse shape than you were at the beginning. It's like, what are we actually trying to get out of this? Yeah. I mean, it's like really what it comes down to, especially for people who want to make multiple books is just keep doing the work to the best of your ability day after day after day and try to divorce yourself in so much as you can from the results and the external, like this idea of external reward. It's about doing the work, which is, I've heard this repeatedly. I've said this myself the most rewarding part of the whole thing anyway. The best days of being a published author are not on book tour and they are not seeing your, your book in the window at the bookstore, which is great. I'm not trying to say that's not fun, but the best days, and this has been corroborated by I don't know how many people I've talked to over the years, are the days when you're sitting at the keyboard all by yourself working on the book and it's going well. Absolutely. That's it. Abs I could yeah. not agree with that more. Sometimes yeah. I'm in here and I'm just like, I just give myself a round of applause at the end of a good <laughs> writing session. And I'm like, that's it right there. I am now that's the it. only cheering section for what just happened. Everything else is asynchronous. And that's just the way it is. But, and that's enough is the point, or it should be, it should be enough. You know, like that satisfaction ultimately should be the real metric. And uh, everything else is kind of gravy and ephemeral. And so if you happen to catch a wave and you get a lot of that external validation, I've seen it happen. Like I've seen writers have that huge moment and they have not published since. Right. And I got to believe it's because they're sort of frozen. Like, oh shit, how do I follow up this grand success with something that's going to top it? And all these expectations and just maybe the fear of 
yeah, this is where the knives come out, uh, you know, which, Absolutely. They, which they will. So that's what happened with Steinbeck, right? He, uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Grapes of Wrath, but it was a, enough time after it that the um, prevailing tides of, you know, aesthetics and culture had shifted and everybody was outraged. And that he got such negative feedback from winning the Nobel Prize that he never wrote fiction again. Hmm. So here you are at the, at the pinnacle. I mean, you're in Sweden, right? And it's the worst thing that's happened to you. I don't know. That's why I don't want to win the Nobel Prize. I mean, God, who needs it, right? <laughs> uh, but it's like, and it's like Bob Dylan uh, not ex- not going to the ceremony. <laughs> I love it. But I, yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, he's like a prickly character, you know, and, and I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's a very Bob Dylan thing to do, but I understand it like in that context, you know, because I think he feels like, Hey, I'm still going, I'm still a working musician. I'm still on tour. I'm still making songs. Like, you're not going to freeze me. You're not going to like, you know, lock me in Amber with this thing. Right. And I don't want that put on me. You know, I'm grateful just- for it but I'm not going to, not going to let you kind of define me that way. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day about, uh, when Jean Paul Sartre refused the Nobel prize and he said, a writer should resist being turned into an institution. I want to say this is like 1964 or something, but I was like the balls of that. I mean, can you imagine like, well, I don't think I would be that cool. That's, that's somebody who really gets what you just said, you know? Yeah. I mean, like that, it brings up an interesting question. I mean, I, I'm like you, I think if, if I ever were honored like that, I would be like, you know, thank you. I'll come give the speech. (laughs) I'm grateful. I mean, you know, because it is a little bit rude to be recognized by such a august, you know, group and it's such a, a prestigious award, but it might be the right thing to do to just sort of like write your thank you and just stay away and try to not engage too much with it. You know, that might be the, the real wise play before I let you go. I do want to ask about the money part and the yeah. business side of things. Um, because I'm sure people listening are like, how does that part work? At some point you talk to a prospective client, you do have to get down to brass tacks. You're working as an independent contractor and you know, you can look around at what other ghostwriters are charging. You have some frame of reference but some of this is sort of just left up to you. I got to imagine there's some disparity between what Ghostwriter A charges versus what like Ghostwriter D charges, you know, like how do you approach it in that sense? There are a number of variables to consider. Um, We'll start with the easy ones. There's length. So somebody who wants to do a 35,000 word business book that through two revisions and needs it uh, at the market in four months, that's one thing. Somebody who, you know, wants to do between 70,000 and 100,000 words through four revisions, that's, you know, a, a way to, to price it. Um, how much research has to be done is another way. You know, if this is going to require fact-checking, it's going to require extensive investigation of various things to make sure we're saying something original. That's another way of doing it. The, the ghostwriting ranges for a full-length book can, can be very broad. Uh, I mean, it can be 30,000 to 100,000. 
it could be 250,000. It could be a million. I mean, who knows what the ghostwriter for Prince Harry's book got. I mean, you know, it's like you could, you're in the millions at that point. But frankly, anytime I've charged over 100,000, it's been a bad idea. Uh, the expectations are, even if we coach on everything, even if we coach that this is not going to be the quality of writing of, you know, Joy Harjo or E.B. White or whatever you have in your mind. It's just, we're not going to get there. It's not going to be on a bestseller list. You know, it's like, even if you do all this sort of coaching, it's still the expectations from having spent that amount of money are just so profound that I feel like there's a sweet spot between those figures that I mentioned. And that can it depend on a variety of things. It can depend on um, how ready you assess the person to be, like how much work is going to need to be done. You may not know this explicitly, but how much work is going to need to be done before we can even really get started? Like how, how ready they are to harvest their own truth, what their expectations for a finished product are, you know, whether it's, it's, we're really going to be talking about every verb or whether it's, this is, I want to get it out. I don't want it to be overwritten. I'm not trying to reach an audience where it is overwritten to begin with. My people are, I don't want anybody to be intimidated. I want people to be reading it, whatever that is, the ninth grade reading level. Yeah. I mean, so, so there are a number of factors. There's also like what the market will bear. I mean, that's another thing about being in business for yourself. I mean, you might want to make as much money as you can, but there's also what somebody's going to be comfortable paying. And that happens to fit your um, monthly or yearly numbers at this point. Like this is going to be good. You know, it's also chemistry, like talking to this person, like this conversation has been great. You know, like I could imagine if you were like, I need you to ghostwrite my book. Not going to happen. Okay. But you know, it's like, I'd be like, I never to, know. You never know. <laughs> I'd love to spend 30 hours talking to you. You know what I mean? It's going to give me energy as opposed to there are clients that are toxic and now they're like taking three hours for every hour. There's the hour before when you're dreading having to talk to them. There's the hour you're talking to them. There's the hour afterwards when you have to recover from them. (laughs) You might need to make that a little bit more expensive because they're literally taking up more of your bandwidth. Well, what it sounds like is like part of the learning curve for you in this profession is learning how to rapidly discern these things so that you don't get into a situation where you've set a price and you've undersold and all of a sudden you're not getting paid well to do a ton of work. Like you have to make sure that it's worth your time. And I can imagine, you know, trying to lock in a client and trying to get it over the finish line so that you can get business. You could maybe earlier on in your career, make some mistakes in that area where you're sort of overextending yourself for not enough compensation. And so you get good at calibrating your pitch on the business side of things, right? That's completely right. And the other thing is making sure that you are getting paid. I mean, people who pursue this usually come from arts backgrounds, may undervalue their efforts, may be worried about how somebody is going to monetize it. This is really not our place to worry about. I mean, it's, you know, this is what it costs. And then you let other people, it's the free market. You let other people decide. You're not manipulating them. You're not 
forcing them to do anything, you know, let them decide. I think underselling, undervaluing our work is, is, is common. And, um, I don't know, uh, how to inspire confidence in people to say that you're worth it. But if you want to have this kind of life, you have to ask yourself, okay, what, what do I need? Like, what is my rent mortgage, whatever, what is my family situation? What part of the country do I live? Like, what are my bills? What is it going to take? And I almost reverse engineer it from there. You know, I mean, there's, you have your standards. We can all Google like what a ghostwriter makes, or you can go on a site like Read Z or Fiverr and watch people price dive all day long, you know, race to the bottom of how low I can make this. All right, well, let those people do that. It, this doesn't have to be you. You know, right. figure out that's what, not even that's not smart business. That's not smart business to race to the bottom. Right? right. I mean, you want to be at the top of the market, I think, is the place to be slightly above work. Uh, average is where we like to be. Sweet spot is, a, is the high side of moderate. Brad, that's, that's what we like there to be. Go. OK, <laughs> we're boutique. We're definitely not the cheapest people out there. OK, you let people know that's almost a selling point, you know? Yeah, exactly. People, I think, you know, who are serious don't want the cheap guy. They want to maybe, like you say. That's sweet spot. But, you know, I do this with just products. You know, you're on Amazon or something and you're like, okay, which toilet brush am I going to buy? Like, it's usually going to be one slightly above average because right. you're like, I don't want to get the worst one. <laughs> no. Definitely not. I'm worth more than that's that. This, right? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But in terms of like churn, because this is a lot, like book, book work is intensive and it takes a lot of you body and mind and soul, you know, it's a lot. And so if you're trying to build a successful business and earn a good living, you've got to do several books a year, but you also, I could imagine burnout is an issue if you get too much in the pipeline and you find yourself trying to write three books at once. Like I just thinking about that makes me sort of so I, I, it seems like you have help. I mean, you've got some employees and you've got like freelancers in your orbit that you can turn to to help with certain pieces of the puzzle. But how many do you do a year? Yeah, I mean, it's good as you bring up a bunch of good questions. One thing I think you're talking about body, soul and mind, the balancing activities for a writer, editor, um, you know, I'm down in San Diego, right? So meditating by the ocean in the morning, going for a run in the afternoon, just no matter what I'm in charge, my business, you know, I'll get, I'll get back to it clear the head, invigorate the momentum, you know, be happy that this is my life and do my best work and not just try to sit at the desk all day long. And cause I mean, the diminishing returns and then the work gets poor. And so that understanding that there has to be body time, there has to be, family, friend, connection time is one thing. As far as books at the same time, you know, I think that one of the keys is that they're not in the same genre. Uh, I won't take two books that are in the same genre. If there's a, if there are big think books about productivity, for example, which I love working in that area. I love learning things about that. I love enhancing my own strategies. But if I'm doing two at the same time, now I'm not really sure. I come up with an idea. I'm not sure which book I'm going to put it in, or I'm not sure which voice is saying that. And that's, that's, but I mean, if I'm doing that, but I'm also doing a cookbook, 
and I'm doing a memoir of a Portuguese industrialist who, you know, left home at 11 and is now a multimillionaire. Like now we got, I, I'm not really, I don't, I'm not getting confused. You know, it's not right. sitting down to work and these things are very different from each other. So multiple projects going at the same time sometimes. And in a typical year, how many books do you ghostwrite? Ballpark. I'd say four to six. Sometimes they don't, they over, the years overlap also. So just because we're working on them, sometimes people need time in between. So where there isn't really an active phase, sometimes they're shorter, sometimes they're longer. Everybody wants you to think that they're their, you're their only client. I mean, right. you know, I've had people paying me whatever, $3,000 to do a developmental and on their novel. And they're like, and how many other clients do you have right now? And I'm like, okay, what, first of all, where do you think I live <laughs> that that's all I need? If you want the answer to be two, you know, I mean, like, but also that what they're really asking is, will you be there for me? Right. I mean, do you, is there, is there a good customer service? Do you know, are you going to be able to help keep me on my timeline? Will you be able to meet your um, responsibilities? And those are questions we try to resolve at the beginning through referrals or references. And also, you know, you got to show people that you got to deliver for them over and over again. And then they usually stop asking those kinds of questions. And then the payment, the fee structure, it seems to be phased, like sort of like a delivery of a manuscript to a publisher where you get paid an initial fee and then there's a fee delivered upon delivery of like the first draft, you know, on, on the way to the end. That's sort of how it works with you. Yeah, for sure. Milestone payments down, first draft, second draft, when the third draft is finished. So usually those are the four. Um, I think the, the best piece of advice that I can offer is get the money ahead of time and have each payment be for the next phase of work. And people will be, some people will be like fine with that. Some people will be surprised, but we'll come around to that. You don't want to lose the job, but at the same time, it's like anything can happen and you're now you're going to be left with, you know, having done all the work. And so like who should be taking the fall for that? If you know you're going to deliver, there's no reason to not get paid ahead of time. So the payment kicks off the next period. Got it. And so you're starting at like day one. It's like day one, you get paid. You finish that first phase, you get paid again. Right. And then you work on phase two. And how many phases typically yeah, are there? So four? that would be a four. The fourth one might be done upon completion. So that's where they get to you know determine that. But you know, you're saying to the client, you get to make your payment to say you want to keep going. That's where your autonomy comes in. You know, if this isn't working for you or you're not satisfied with the progress or your goals have changed, then, you know, we don't keep going. There's no obligation to do that. But there's also no refund for the work that's already been there's completed. There's no refund. And if your wife is in the hospital, you should be there and not right. trying to get a few bucks at a book architecture. Okay. Right. I mean, come on. Yeah. Come on. I mean, you know, it's like, <laughs> what world are people living in? Um, well, it's been a super fun conversation and like really interesting and informative to kind of hear about this job and this process from somebody who 
does it for a living and does it successfully? Because I think it's the kind of thing that a lot of people understand in context, but don't really have any, uh, any sense of the nuances of it. So I appreciate the time. Congratulations on, uh, all the success that you've had. Uh, I'm probably going to, I'm going to plug you in the, uh, in the outro, but like, what can people read and where can people find you? Why don't you plug yourself since you've got craft books and you've got a website and services, uh, on, on offer. I appreciate that. And this has been a great conversation. I I've enjoyed it tremendously and, and went way past what I had prepared in my mind. Like, I think I should talk about that. We just, by minute seven, I was like, whatever, we're in it. And it's, it's great. Um, so bookarchitecture.com is the home of all things. Uh, it has the services. It has a link for the newsletter, which goes out six times a year. Uh, it has the books. Uh, it has a ton of free resources specifically on the, the, the books that you've written, the books that I've written, also the clients that I've worked with. And ton of free resources, like on the library page, there's like 25 articles and, you know, they're all about the nuts and bolts of writing. And we try to give as much of that away as we can. We're, we're proud of the website and the newsletter and it's, it's, it's all there. All right. Well, great to meet you. Thank you so much for the time and best of luck with all that you have going on. Thanks so much, Brad. It's my pleasure. Okay, you guys, there we have it. That's today's Craftwork episode, my conversation with Stuart Horwitz, founder and principal of Book Architecture. It was a great conversation about ghostwriting and how it actually happens. For more on Stuart Horwitz and the work that he does and his books and everything else, head on over to bookarchitecture.com. You can also follow Stuart and Book Architecture on social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the other people show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Subscribe for free to my newsletter over at bradlisty.substack.com. Join the other people Patreon community over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Help keep this show going into the future. If you have a couple of minutes and you would be so kind, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. You can also write a little review in some places. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is a novel available now in trade paperback ebook and audiobook editions i narrate the audiobook so if you want to read my book you can read my book it's called be brief and tell them everything okay so coming up on wednesday there will be i think <laughs> a new episode it is tbd it's been a holiday weekend i've been traveling a bit it's a little bit uh, crazy right now, but I think it's all going to come together. I'm working to make it all come together, but I am not prepared to make an official statement about who the guest will be on Wednesday. So it's going to be a surprise. Stay tuned. <laughs>